and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about radars, mini-maps, and compasses. Why are these tools used in games? What is the best method for representing the player's surroundings? Also, where is that damn collectible? I mean, the map shows it's supposed to be right here, but I don't see it. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's above me or something. To help me discuss radars, mini-maps, and compasses is a man whose moral compass always points magnetic north. My good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Magnets. How do they work? How do they work indeed? That's what we're here to discuss. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's exactly true. I think we're here to discuss many things beyond that. Your, your intros are really starting to cut into my, uh, my brilliant skits that I've had planned it's, out it's, for months. It's been a while. I, I have, I've been missing the, the Jared skits. You know, they, they typically kind of put me on edge, but then I carry that energy into the rest of the episode. I've been missing that. Yeah, well, I don't know. Like Your intros are getting a little bit longer, and I, I, I do go ahead and plan these improv skits out a little bit. You know, I kind of I workshop them for a couple of months before we record. Well, yeah, and then I spend the entirety of our of that intro trying to destroy your improv skit. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jared, how you doing, man? You got a new job. How's that going? It's good. Yeah, I just started. Um, I am the producer editor over at Machinima as of last week. So it is interesting. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Um, kind of making a a sideways transition from television to video games journalism. I don't know what you call it. Question mark. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. I don't. I don't know how your boss would approve of you saying it that way, but. <laughs> Well, Jared, I'm I'm from this point forward, I'm just going to be referring to you as Bruner because our our amazing guest today, his name is also Jared. You uh, you probably know him as the uh, lead designer on Art Club Challenge, which is coming out pretty soon. Here, he's also an organizer with the Cleveland Game Developers Community. Please help me in welcoming Jared Huntley. Jared, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Hey, good. And and I'm sorry, Jared, for for stealing your first namesake on on this <laughs> podcast. Hey, man, it's a great name. So I agree. Don't I agree. apologize to me. And you guys both have very original spellings of your first names, which I also appreciate. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. J-A-R-R-Y-D. That's not one that uh, I see on novelty store license plate keychains very often. <laughs> I have nev- I've met one person in my entire life with that same spelling. That's amazing. Where did you meet this person? It was like, uh, it was when I was in college and I was working a, uh, a job doing QA and it was like the vice president's son or something like that. Um, he like started there and he's like, Oh, what's your name, Jared? And he's like, Oh, how do you spell it? He's like, My my son has a unique spelling. And then I'm like, J A R R Y D. He's like, Whoa. <laughs> and so many minds were blown. Yeah. And then um his son came in one time and I'm like, Hey, nice name. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared, for for people who might not be familiar with you, where did you get your start in in game development? Uh um, I guess, you know, I, I have a couple of different starts. Um, you know, I'd been playing games, you know, most of my life. Um, I got an N64. That was the first console that was mine. We had like a NES before that. Um, And that, you know, when I had the N64, that was when I first started thinking a little bit about, you know, oh, you know, somebody has to put thought into making these things. I wonder how it works or, you know, trying to figure things out. Um, You know, and then also when I was a kid, um, me and a bunch of friends got this book from... um, a bookstore and it was like learn game programming in 24 hours or something like that we're like yeah we're gonna make video games 
and it was literally like I don't, I don't know what this I don't know what this bookstore is you're talking about. Yeah, I mean Am- Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You must mean you must mean Amazon. <laughs> it was like you know one of the pre-Amazon physical stores that Amazon is getting into now, which is oh, I've heard. I've, I think I've, I've read about that somewhere on on the internet. <laughs> Super meta. Um, <laughs> And obviously it was kind of one of those snake oil books where it's like, all right, kids, you can learn C++ and you can learn DirectX and make your own games. Um, but then, you know, I didn't, I kind of fell out of, you know, working on um, trying to learn how to make games because uh, this was well before things like Unity or, you know, Unreal 4 were, you know, just, you know, free to get started with. Um, and um, in college, I um, I majored in computer science and I was learning how to program and I was at a like a a, uh, a discount store or something like that and I saw like this this XNA programming book on discount you know sale and I was like oh I used to kind of want to learn how to like make games I guess I'm learning how to program maybe I can teach myself how to program games and so um, I taught myself XNA and then you know just kind of taught myself more from there and it kind of snowballed. What was your first foray into the actual industry? I mean, I guess, you know, kind of the big thing that, you know, made me uh, consider game development as a career was going to my first GDC, which was four years ago. But basically, you know, there was a call on Twitter. Anyone with, uh, you know, a financial need, people who are gender minorities, you know, minorities, whatnot, just apply and... Uh, you could get an expo pass, and there was like a hundred replies to this tweet. I'm like, yeah, there's there's no way. And a, uh, I sent an email over, and they're like, hey, sounds good. I was like, what? Um, <laughs> and then I basically had to book a GDC trip by the seat of my pants because this was two weeks before GDC, and I wasn't planning hmm. to what, go at all. What was the organization? Um, Do you mind name dropping it? Yeah, it was actually um, a gentleman, um, Brandon Sheffield. Um, he writes for. Gamasutra. He runs a um, a studio, Necrosofty. Yeah, he just he. I think he buys like expo passes um, every year and gives them out to people who could need them. That's awesome. Right on. Yeah, we had Tanya to pass on here. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she runs I Need Diverse Games, and they kind of do a, a very similar thing. So that's cool. It's uh, it's good to hear there's people out there doing doing work like that, helping other people get into those events. Tell me a little bit about the uh, the Cleveland Game Developers Organization that you are a uh, coordinator on. Is that is that an accurate statement? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, right now, I'm the the head organizer, and we have some other organizers as well. And it's basically our, our local game development community. So, um, you know, we're focused on education, um, teaching people how to make games, getting people into you know learning about games, creating games collaboration, and just working together. So. Uh, when I mentioned earlier that I had kind of taught myself, you know, game programming in college, uh, kind of the next step was I was like, oh, I wonder if there's like any game development studios in Cleveland. So I searched for like Cleveland, you know, game developers or game development studios and the group came up. Uh, I joined the group and then I just started going to events. I got involved in the community. Um, we do different things like game jams, bring in, you know, industry guest speakers when we can. Um, we have a social meetup where we just hang out at a coffee shop, you know, talk games, people bring demos. We do something called Excuse to Create where it doesn't matter if you're working on art, programming, poetry, interpretive dance. It, you know, it just helps to be out in a place with other creative people doing creative things. Um, and over the years, you know, I, I 
you know, was just doing more at the community. I became an organizer. Um, and then probably, I guess, I think probably about two and a half or three years ago, I became the head organizer. So part of my role is just, you know, making sure everyone in the community feels welcome, working with um, community partners. So uh, there's a maker fair that we do with the Cleveland Public Library. There's a festival we have called Ingenuity Fest. It's kind of like a maker fair slash concert slash science fair for, you know, grownups and families and just like all kinds of cool stuff. There's dance, music, art, uh, installations, um, and, you know, setting up those types of things uh, so our members can show off their games. There's a convention in Columbus called GDEX, making sure we have a booth there. Uh, so our members can show off their games and then um, setting up workshop, things like that. Kind of sounds like how I got started out here in Los Angeles. I just kind of showed up and then eventually people started giving me a paycheck, except instead of <laughs> helping the community, I just make bad TV. So, you know, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, are organizations like the one you're um, the head organizer on, is, are they common around the country or is this this one in Cleveland pretty unique? Yeah, there's there's a ton of game development communities. Um you know, all around the U.S. So um, there's the Cleveland Game Developers in Cleveland. There's the Central Ohio Game Dev Group in Columbus. There's um, the uh, Cincinnati chapter of the IGDA in um, Cincinnati. Um, St. Louis Game Developers. Uh, there's Game Developers in Kentucky, Game Dev Lou, and Run Jump Dev in Lexington. So these are all groups that we know and, you know, we kind of attend each other's expos, you know, we'll see each other at, you know, kind of regional events and things like that. So that's one of the cool things about um, being in game development is that you can find one of these, you know, other communities and um, the game industry is so tight knit that a lot of people know each other. Let's talk a little bit about your your upcoming game, Art Club Challenge. Uh, I guess, tell me, tell me what it is. Tell, tell me what the story is behind it, how it plays. Lay it on me. All right, it's a first-person shooter set in a dystopia. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was on board. <laughs> um, at one point, I, I joked about a, uh, a kart racing um, sequel to Art Club Challenge, but we'll, we'll save that for the back burner. Um, Heck yeah. Art Club Challenge is the new Frog Fractions. Oh, snap. Let's 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 Make keep that amongst ourselves, and, and we'll do that. <laughs> Sorry, did I spoil it? <laughs> Spoiled what? <laughs> yeah. What? What are we doing here? Art Club Challenge is a mobile game that teaches people how to make art through limitations. So um, me, myself, I'm not actually an artist. And, you know, if I look at something like Photoshop, my eyes kind of roll over in the back of my head with the complexity of just, you know, all these tools and layers and blending and stuff. Um, so one of my goals with Art Club was to almost kind of unknowingly teach people about art and getting into making art through puzzles. So kind of at the core of the game, it's a puzzle game. You've, you're given a challenge, make a shark, but you're only given four colors, black, yellow, red, and blue. And then you can only make shapes that are rectangles or squares. So you can resize it so it's tall and thin or, you know, wide and thin or, you know, just a square. But using those limitations, you need to figure out how to make a shark or how to make a forest or something like that. And um, the interesting thing is that if you give somebody all the flexibility in the world, you know, Photoshop, where they can make anything, they're kind of like, ah, you know, that that's a little bit too hard. That's something that's difficult. I, I can't actually do that. Um, but if you give them something limited, um, sometimes it helps people feel more creative because uh, they have to think about it. They have to put some effort into figuring out, 
you know, all right, how in the world am I going to create, you know, this type of animal or, or this type of scene with just these limited tools? It's like uh, from photography. It's not about the tools you use. It's about the eye behind the tools that makes a difference. Exactly. Um, so there's a storyline in the game where, you know, you're a art student approaching an art school and um, you have different challenges that the kind of, you know, uh, professor in charge, you know, who's, who's kind of grumpy is giving you. But then um, there's kind of the uh, just challenge mode where you can go through and complete these challenges. Once you're done with a piece of art, you can submit it online to the global gallery where, you know, I might have one way where I interpreted, you know, making a cat. But, you know, you might have another way. Um, somebody else might have another way. So you can go on the online gallery and see how, you know, everybody created their art and then um, share it online and things like that. That sounds awesome. Is it a mobile game or... Yes, where, where mobile. You, that's awesome. And I'm I'm curious how you said it's a puzzle game. I'm curious how the game recognizes that you've satisfied the puzzle, or is it just like you you've completed a picture and then it gets submitted, and then um, is there some sort of voting component? Like, how does it recognize that you've satisfied the challenge part? Yeah, no, great question. So um, there isn't any voting in the game, and that was something I wanted to avoid intentionally because. You know, I want to encourage people who don't consider themselves artists or people who, you know, might have ruled out art or say, you know, oh, that's not something I can do anymore. Um, and when you have something like voting, that just like makes people feel um, a little bit more uncomfortable. They, they feel like, oh, well, my art might not be as good as someone else's. I don't want to submit it. Um, but as far as the how it determines the art, um, we, Basically, I, I built a tool set in the game, and we can look for different types of things. So we can look for the number of um, paint blocks. We can look for the color. We can look for the average distribution of this color. We can look for how much of the screen is covered in blocks of this color versus blocks of that color. And so um, right now, the team is is me. You know, I'm the the lead designer and and lead programmer on it. But I have two students from local game dev schools who are helping me out. One is focused on the art and kind of UI and stuff like that, cleaning things up um, from my, you know, programmer placeholder arts. And then the other, um, she's focused on the puzzle design. So she's able to go in with these tools that I made and put all these criteria in, you know, write the, the scenario. And then um, it will look for these different things when you're completing the challenges. It seems, it seems like you have quite a challenge on your hands because I can understand like it, it can be difficult but also in some ways liberating to try to create art within a set of limitations but i think even more difficult than that is what you've placed on yourself is like how do you how do you distinguish almost mathematically what art is it it, it seems fascinating to me to to try to like come up with some way to like numerically represent what you know what qualifies as art or what qualifies as a you know, satisfactory for completing one of the challenges in the game. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to like give it a try and, and see how that, how that plays out. Thanks. And one of the other things that is kind of the, I guess, you know, the, the points of the game is to show people that, you know, your art is your own. So um, if I wanted to, you know, I could have designed the game. So it's like, all right, this is the only way that people can make this piece. And, you know, their art has to look exactly like this. Um, but within those challenges and within those limitations there's a lot of freedom with you know how people want to present their art and how to um you know interpret it so there's kind of both sides of that um 
that um, situation there. Can I pay money to have it printed on a T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. Yeah, but, where, where, do, where do the microtransactions come in? How do I buy more colors? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd like to buy I'd green. Like to, I'd like to, uh, can I give you $5 for a circle? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's no microtransactions. Um, Whew. Um, and, and honestly, the, the shirt um, thing, and, and more specifically, um, I have looked into, you know, what would it take to, you know, if somebody likes their piece of art, getting it actually like printed on like a poster or something like that? Yeah. Um, that's not in the game now, but it's something that we've considered. So stay tuned. Awesome. Right on. I'm definitely going to be following this because this sounds like my kind of mobile game. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. I spent I spent way too long with uh, with draw something. So, yeah, this sounds right up my alley. Uh, now, where, where are you guys in the development process on the game? So we are fairly close to um, to you know finishing um, the game. We're going through user testing right now. We're we're polishing things up. We're you know redefining the the challenges. We haven't released the uh, launch date yet, but stay tuned because um, we'll have some announcements coming soon. Well, cool, Jared. I, I'm I look forward to hearing the music you create, and I look forward to uh, definitely getting my hands on Art Club Challenge, uh, but. Today we're actually here to talk about magnets. radars, <laughs> magnets, radars, mini maps, and compasses. Get that magnets talk out of here, Jared. Typically, to kick this off, we will jump in the time machine and take a little stroll back down uh, history lane. Jared, where did uh, mini maps, compasses, and radars originate from? So we're finally getting into my area of video games that I experienced growing up. Um, this is a little bit before my time. But I do remember playing the game uh, Defender. It came out in 1980. I had it on a two-inch floppy at some point. Um, it was developed by former pinball designer Eugene Jarvis for Williams Entertainment. And it was a side-scrolling shooter. You were uh, kind of like in a ship shooting shooting at, at baddies, uh, scrolling across the screen. It drew inspiration from games like Space Invaders. And you were just kind of fighting off hordes of aliens. Uh, the game became really successful in 1981 after there were reports about it actually beating out Pac-Man for quarters earned at the arcades. So that was kind of like the first time people were paying attention to that kind of thing. Like, man, something finally beat Pac-Man. It's in every arcade and every bar in the world, almost. Um, as the player, so the reason we're talking about Defender is because as you flew around the planet in the game, uh, you would scroll to the left and the right, but only a small portion of the entire planet you could see on screen at one time. And there was a tiny mini map at the top of the screen where it showed you the topography of the entire planet as well as your position. And that kind of helped you get around. Um, I don't remember, like, why did you have to go back to areas that you've been in before? Do you do you recall, Steve? So the, the alien invaders would just invade, like, randomly around the map. And you would have to get to where the aliens were quickly because they would start abducting people from the surface of the planet. Okay. And that would, it, it was kind of a frenetic game. I mean, it, it's historically known as being like a very, very difficult arcade game. Uh, Sounds like Resogun might've drawn inspiration from Defender. Oh, for, for sure. Yeah. For sure. If yeah, if you've played Resogun recently that, that you can see the direct influences of uh Defender on that. I remember Defender. I, I think I got it like as a pack in with my, my, the first computer we ever bought was like a compact Presario. Um, and I think it, it came with Defender, that, which I had to exit Windows 3.1 and load 
onto DOS to play. <laughs> Old school. Yeah. <laughs> now, Jared, did um, did you ever play Defender? Do you remember this game? Yeah. So I don't know if I actually played Defender when I was younger, but um, one of the things I like to do is just to collect old video games. And so probably about five years ago, um, actually, no, about six years ago, one of my friends knew, you know, I did game development. I played games and gave me like a stack of like 12 Atari 2600 games. Um, so the next year at the, we have a local like used game show. Um, I picked up a Atari 2600 and just kind of went through this old library of, of Atari games. And one of them was Defender. And I was surprised at how well that game stood up. Um, now, it's kind of one of those 20, games where the, you can sort of see like where modern influence is drawing inspiration from. You're like, this doesn't feel like, What's that other old game we always talk about, Steve? Space War? Doesn't feel well, like Space that's War. one of them. Yeah. Now, on the uh, the Atari 2600 version of it, was that one on an alien planet or was that one like with a cityscape as the background? Um, I I don't quite remember. I don't I don't know if it was really that defined enough for you to tell. Um, mm. I just remember that, you know, kind of landscape. Um, it looked like you were on the surface of some kind of you know, planet with space above you, and then, you know, those ships and things. I got you. Because I know when they did the arcade version, they had built, you know, specifically the cabinet for it. And then when they had, had a, adapted it for the consoles at the time, that they had, they had to completely change the aesthetic because the consoles weren't as powerful as what they were putting in the arcade cabinets. So they had to make certain concessions. So what, what originally was sort of like this alien planet surface became um, like a cityscape. Like there were, there were buildings and stuff. But I don't remember what console that was for, so I don't remember if it was exactly the 2600 where they had to make some of those changes. But Defender Defender's a great game. Like it, it For the time, it, it was a... A beautiful game i think anyone who remembers playing that game probably remembers you know what the look and feel of shooting a laser from your ship was like it had it was, a good art very, style yeah good art style very striking um like aesthetic and also just good sound effects like it all kind of worked really well together which is kind of cool coming from a uh you know someone who had like a, a more pinball background instead of a you know, necessarily like a video game design background. It kind of came out like parallel to Asteroids, where Asteroids was played more on like a vector monitor. Um, Defender was played on like a regular monitor with using pixels instead of a, a vector. Uh, so it was kind of, it was kind of, they kind of made a shift, I think, that they were going for. So they weren't directly competing with that game. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how mini maps are, are used in a modern context. We, the the old one, you know, like obviously for Defender, it was attempting to kind of represent the whole planet because they couldn't show you the entire planet at once or convey all of that information about the entire planet at once on the screen without it becoming too cluttered. So it had a had a mini map at the top that kind of showed your position in the planet. But when we talk about mini maps and radars and compasses in a modern context, what what comes to your mind, Jared? What what leaps to your mind first? Um. I guess, you know, just any, well, actually the first thing that, that pops to my mind is just like lower right. Um, for some reason, it seems like a lot of games put the minimap, you know, in the lower right side of the screen. Um, I don't know if there's a specific reason for that, but, you know, a lot of 
open world games um, tend to have mini maps, so you know where you're headed, you know where you're oriented. Um, it also might show you know your objective or the the next objective you have to get to, um, and it's just kind of this this ever present you know direction of of where you you should go. When I just sort of think of mini maps and radars, like right off the bat, the first thing that jumps to my mind is one of the upper corners. But I, I at least in the last you know five to ten years, have been playing a lot of first person shooters, and I think that that's where those get placed. So it's funny that we all sort of have like I guess maybe different uh, first impressions about where the the mini map should be placed or where it's typically placed. Um, but Bruner, what else? What else jumps to your mind when you're thinking of of mini maps in video games? Ooh, Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid for PlayStation One. Um, that game was kind of designed around the the mini map because you kind of played from like a three quarter overhead perspective, so you couldn't see shit more than like twenty feet ahead of your character. Um, I suspect that was done because of performance reasons. Trying to, they didn't probably have the draw distance to render the entire world at once. So, um, you know, they, they kind of designed the game where your Soliton radar had the vision cones of all the guys that you're Do you actually on. remember the name of your radar system in that game? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my god! Because they like, they, like, pointed out at the very beginning. I, I mean, I had the demo for Metal Gear Solid before I actually played the game. So I probably played through, like, the first half hour of that that, that, that early game, like, a hundred times. I, lo- I love your fandom for Metal Gear Solid. Well, because that's the thing is like everything in Metal Gear Solid, they explain in some way. They're like, I don't know, nano machines. I don't think I've ever loved a game the way that you love Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's like one of those really early examples where I can think of, you know, outside of maybe a racing game for Super Nintendo um, that I felt like I was constantly looking at the mini map and using that as like a, a an important tool to the gameplay. Yeah, and that kind of brings up an interesting point that um, I think maybe even Jared was getting at a little bit earlier, which is that there seems to be like the use of mini maps and radars and, and these tools almost seems to to change a little bit based on what genre of game you're playing. Because you know, I think of like MMOs and I think of the map being towards the bottom of the screen. Although I'm sure that's, you know, completely customizable for most games um, of that genre. But but yeah, like things like vision cones, that's that's almost universally for stealth games. You know, that's that's a some information that's important for a stealth game. So it, it shows up in those in that genre all the time. Um, you know, not all mini maps show where where enemies are. Sometimes they're just kind of showing where things like collectibles are, but Definitely in first-person shooters, they use that space on screen to try to convey where, uh, you know, where enemy players are or enemy combatants are, um, and that's just be- that's just sort of standard for that genre, or at least in you know in this modern context of of these these tools and the way they're implemented. Um, are there any other like are there any other striking elements of like mini maps and radars and, and these these tools uh that you can think of jared that we haven't brought up here yeah i mean there's there's definitely different ways like you know you were kind of um uh, pointing out there's different ways that those maps function sometimes they're just you know the topology they're just the landscape and that's it sometimes they show enemies sometimes they only show enemies if they fire or you know if they're alerted 
Um, then there's also things like Fog of War, where it's like sometimes you might see the shape of the ground, but you might not see any features until you explore it. Or you might not even see what's up ahead until you explore that area. So even within, you know, mini maps, there's a number of different ways they can be used. Now, why why have mini maps become such a a common tool in design, Jared? Why do you think that that's emerged as as something that's almost standard in in the um, I don't know. I, I would say like AAA game design. I don't know if that that satisfies um, what I'm trying to get at here. But like, why why are mini maps and radars so pervasive in popular design? And I guess in my opinion, more so than saying you know AAA, I think um, you know mini maps are, are fairly common in you know open world games, um, which oftentimes are AAA kind of experiences where you can kind of go where you want. And I think it's because, you know, you have this open world or this very large area uh, you can go in. How do you tell people where to go? How does the player know, you know, how they should reach their objective? Or if they decide to, you know, follow this road or, or go on this mountain, how do they know how to get back? And I think the first kind of, you know, tool that people kind of jumped to was, oh, well, to let people where they know, we can give them a map, which there's there's pluses and minuses to that but i think you know at least in, in you know my kind of experience i've seen a lot more mini maps um with the rise of more open world games I, I think one of the the things that mini maps do really well is give you a sense of where you are in the world and obviously that that sounds like pretty obvious i think but in video games we don't have that like spatial awareness that we do when we're in, you know, in, in real life. Like we don't have that sense of like North and South and knowing street names and, and all of those other tools that we use subconsciously every single day to get an idea of our surroundings. It seems much more difficult to, to put those elements into a game to make a player like, in a, in a very grounded sense, know where they are in the world. So the minimap definitely seems like a very helpful tool for orienting someone in um, within the game. Now, Bruner, I know you played uh, Grand Theft Auto V. Yes. Did you, fi- did you find the, the minimap in that game to be helpful or useful? Yeah, I mean, it works thematically in Grand Theft Auto V because it's set in present day. You know, it's... I, I use my GPS on my phone to go just about everywhere, whether to be look at traffic, how traffic is, or if it's an unfamiliar location. So, uh, you know, being able to open up the big map, set a waypoint, and then drive there in Grand Theft Auto, that just makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, it absolutely helps because otherwise you would spend most of your time lost and turned around, whereas all you want to do is get to the next mission. The reason I bring up Grand Theft Auto V and why I'm asking you about it, if you found it useful, is because I think Grand Theft Auto V is one of those games where I would probably find myself very lost if I didn't have that mini-map tool available to me. And it's because I, I, I think in that game, and maybe we're just not at this point technologically, but it, it's very difficult to do things like learn the names of roads in that game. I don't even know if the roads are named. Um, they are. They are. Are they? 
I don't know if are, every are single there, road is, but I, I believe most most are of there the visible main... are there visible signs in the world to let you know the names of all the roads, or is it just something yes, that's I, available on the map? No, I think I think there are street signs. Well, I, and and maybe this gets to my point, which is it's it's very hard for me to at least in that game to navigate by using those tools that in a real world context, I would have no problem seeing a street sign. Well, well especially when the camera is floating, you know, 30 feet up above the back of your, you know, it's a third person mm-hmm. perspective. So you're already kind of far away from everything and driving quickly. It's obvious that you're not going to stop to read street signs. And you brought up something else when you were talking about Grand Theft Auto five, Jared, which is how it fits thematically in that game. Um, Jared, do you, do you find that theme is a, it, plays a big part in your enjoyment of a game. Do you find that like if a mini map exists in like a fantasy game, it bumps you or pulls you out of that experience at all? So I guess my kind of take on this is um, how the mini map is used, because I think that sometimes mini maps can be a symptom of, um, you know, other parts of design, not communicating the, to the player where they are. Cause like you mentioned, you know, in, in Grand Theft Auto 5, it might be hard to know exactly where you are. Are you on this street versus that street? Things like that. Um, and when you're, we're looking at a screen, it's hard to know spatially where we are. But um, as game designers, we have a lot of other tools to help communicate to the player where they are. So um, one example I, I really kind of liked where I thought the, the minimap fit, you know, thematically really well was um, Firewatch where you're this, you know, person who's watching out for fires in this, you know, kind of national park. And the map is actually a physical map that your, you know, your your player brings up and holds in front of his face. Um, but on top of that, each one of those areas you go to uh, kind of has a different look and feel. You know, the color palette in this area might be a little bit different than this area. The trees in this area look different than the trees in that area. So, um it's not so much the map itself, but it's it's kind of the other tools that, that game designers can use to help clue the player into where they're at in that world. Um, so, you know, if I feel like I'm, you know, constantly needing to go to the mini-map, um, it might be because the environment isn't communicating um, enough. Or, you know, if I feel like I only need to use the mini-map to orient myself, maybe there's, you know, um, other tools that the game developers have used to... Um, help orient the player or communicate uh, where they are, where they need to go. I mean, I think another part of that too is I'm going to use Mafia 2 here as an example. Um, If the world that you're in is just not interesting between points, like why would you ever explore that and get to know the, get to know the world? Mafia 2 had this big open world, but there's virtually hard, nothing to do in between missions. It was just, you, you could drive there and see things, but there was no reason to get out of your car, look at the building, look at the, where you're at. So it's just like, I'm going to set a waypoint, I'm going to drive there. And there's no reason to ever really, really commit to memory anything else about that world. Yeah, those are, that's just like open world game issues, which is a whole other episode. Sure, we're, we're, true. We're going to talk about that, that at some point. I that promise has a lot that. to do with, with <laughs> how maps are used, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, especially, I mean, the other thing about real life and, you know, bringing this back to the, the real world is that we've all we've all grown up in the real world. At least I assume we all have, um, meaning we all kind of generally know 
our hometown, you know, through incremental exploration and discovery of, of the world around us, we, we learn sort of how our world is laid out. And while I think in some ways these, the tool of a, a mini map can become kind of a crutch for a developer where they, maybe they don't feel the need to um, communicate everything, you know, th- those, those uh, elements that Jared was talking about as effectively because they can rely on the minimap, but the minimap does give you a nice, easy to interpret understanding of this world that you've just been dumped into where you have no other context uh, about what this world looks like or how it's laid out or any of that stuff. Um, the, you know, it, it can, it really can help orient you in that world very quickly without having to, have you go through the experience of wandering around and getting lost and finding your way and learning the names of streets and learning the names of buildings and, you know, learning where the freeways go and and all of those different things, you know, that, that we kind of take for granted in our own lives because we've, we've lived in, in this world and, and we've just sort of absorbed that information. I think in many instances you need a mini map just for that reason. So you can quickly orientate yourself without, you know, like you said, you grow up in an area, you spend every day every week there night and day so you you have an understanding of that but you don't have that time obviously when you're learning a new game it's not how you want to spend your time in that game for the most part um so yeah i mean i think you need them but at some points it depends on the other things that you're trying to accomplish with your game whether or not you're using it as a crutch or as a tool to get from point a to point b now jared i'm actually going to direct this question at you first and then I'll come back to Bruner on it because I'm sure he'll have some stuff to say but do you ever find that um, you as a player will use your mini map as kind of like a crutch for navigating your world yeah um because I guess you know there's there's mini maps that are always there and then there's mini maps that you can kind of pull up and consult um and there's some games even without a mini map I just like don't have a good sense of direction or um, where I need to go. And um, there's a recent game, um, or fairly recent, I guess, um, Everybody Has Gone to the Rapture, um, where you're in this like kind of sleepy, you know, British town where something's happened and nobody's there. Um, but even with the minimap, I, I kept on getting lost in that that game. And um, um, I felt Did it like... it feel good to get lost, though, or was it frustrating? It was a little bit frustrating. I mean, it was, you know, this this kind of beautiful world that, you know, felt incredibly real. Yeah, I, I felt like I needed to continually rely on um, the map to get somewhere. And, you know, kind of in opposition, you know, with Destiny 2, um, I played a little bit. And I would kind of pull open the map to figure out where I needed to go. And then just basically kind of get there. So um, I think it really depends on, you know, we, we took spoke a little bit about how the world feels but then uh, how well is that map um you know because like map design you know is a whole career unto itself you know people who make physical maps and things like that um and sometimes i feel like game maps are are spot on and other times i feel like you know they don't give you the information you need when you need it now do you do you find that you like the the map, the at least the 
mini map or the the radar in Destiny Two? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't have too much of a problem with it. I thought it was implemented pretty well. I have mixed feelings about the way that the radar works in that game. I, I, to a certain degree, I understand kind of what they're going for. Like, there's not a whole lot of information that gets represented on your radar when there are enemies or players in proximity to you. It kind of has this red flash around the edge of your radar indicating where where they are. But I almost, in that game, wonder if they could communicate that stuff through other means, especially since the, the information on your radar is so minimal. You just sort of get a general sense of the area that the enemies are in. You don't know exactly where they are like you would in a game like call of duty and yet when i play like the um the multiplayer in that game especially i find that i'm constantly looking at my radar like 50 percent of the time i'm in a multiplayer game i guarantee my my eyes are on the uh the radar and and trying to see like where people are and that's what i'm that's kind of what i'm getting at when i'm asking if it if it comes across as like a crutch to the player and and I'll throw out another example, and this is maybe where uh, Bruner will um, attack me. But I, I found that in, in certain games, like, <laughs> no, I'm not bringing up Proteus yet. Um, <laughs> I feel like in, in games, especially like stealth games, I will often use my radar as a way to learn enemy patrols. And I will find that I spend quite a bit of time like stare, just staring at that corner of the screen looking at those vision cones until I'm ready to move and then I'll like make one move and then I'm looking at that radar again and uh, I know I, pl- I know I played Metal Gear Solid this way for sure um, but Bruner do you do you feel like that that's a crutch for you it depends I mean what what other games besides Metal Gear Solid are you using um, as an example of that um this isn't maybe a great example, but I but I kind of did it in um, Horizon Zero Dawn, which is actually a game that doesn't have a mini map. But I kind of operated on the same principle where you can sort of lay, you can track the enemy dinosaurs in that game and learn their their walking paths. And again, I, I'm just trying to like think of things off the top of my head. Metal Gear Solid was the 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 big one, and Destiny was the other big one that I could think of um, immediately, but. I, well, yeah, I find I mean, that that these tools available to me become like the thing that I look at instead of the the beautifully crafted world that the <laughs> that the graphics teams have, have built instead of just like staring at this like 2D representation of the world because that's where they've decided to put all of the important information about how to actually play the game. Well, Metal Gear Solid specifically, like I said, is I think designed like that because of the perspective of which you played. You never could see down the hallway, so you had to look at the map and, and learn enemy enemy patrols. That's what they wanted you to do. I think Horizon Zero Dawn is a good example of them trying to get away from that, where you can also play that as a stealth game, but they implement enemy patrols as, you know, uh, symbols on the ground of where that enemy has been walking. So you can kind of get an idea of where they'll eventually be again. And then you can set up a trap or whatever. I think that's a much better way to do it because you're not spending the whole time looking at something that's not the game. You're looking at, you know, the beautiful grass field that you're going through and the sunset that's there. And I believe that um, that's a conscious decision because there is so much awesome art in that game that they, they wanted you to continue to have your eyes on what you're doing and not as much as where you're going. And Jared, did you play Horizon Zero Dawn this year? I actually did not. That is on my list, but I haven't played it yet. 
All right. Well, I'll just scratch my next 10 follow-up questions off of our show notes. And <laughs> <laughs> are, are there any games that you've been playing recently that have um, moved away from mini maps like Horizon Zero Dawn did that you um, that you really appreciate? Or maybe they moved away but didn't um, you know, fill that space with the other you know, requisite items to orient yourself in the world? Um. This this one could kind of go either way, and um, actually thinking back to a few of my examples, I guess I might have delved into maps versus mini maps because mini maps are you know usually something that are taking up a little bit of the screen. Um, but um, uh, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild, so that game definitely has a mini map in the corner of the screen. Mm. Um, it has a whole lot of crap on the screen. Exactly. <laughs> Ugh. Um, but I kind of almost enjoyed the game more when you turn off all those UI elements um, because the screen is uncluttered. You just have your hearts in the corner of the screen. But one of the things Nintendo really worked on with that game was just having the environment communicate um, directionality. They, you know, there's there's um, big elements in the world and, you know, you can kind of orient yourself based on, oh, you know, the castle's over there, or this mountain's over there, or the the lake or the ocean's over in this direction. Um, and so, obviously, if you're going to a certain um, objective, you might need to consult the map. But if you're just trying to find where something interesting is happening, I feel like the, the environment communicates that really, really well. Yeah, that seems really cool. That seems like it's getting back to a style of game that I remember from my childhood, which are these games that um, actually came with things like graph paper in the, uh, in the box with the game, because they intended for you to actually sort of like map out certain things for yourself. And it seems like Zelda has, you know, they didn't go as far as to include graph paper, at least not as far as I know, but they've, they started to allow you as the player to, put the interesting things on your own map and set your own little goals. And that, that seems really cool, you know, without going all the way back to that old style of design. Um, they seem to have carried that spirit forward into a modern context, which seems really neat. I haven't played it. I'm, I, it's on my list of things to do. I just have to convince my wife to get, to <laughs> let me buy a switch and I'm going to try to do it using my son as the reason <laughs> he's only two. I don't think he'll understand it, but, it's it's really not for him. It's really for me. <laughs> I'm gonna go out and hopefully people don't get too mad at me for saying this. I I bought my Switch last year, a few months after it launched, and then I also picked up um, Breath of the Wild. But for some reason, I am not able. I I'm finding I'm constantly finding myself like not knowing where to go in that game. And I know Nintendo can be kind of notorious for holding your hand too much, so it's refreshing to see them get away from that but i also like i don't have context for what i'm doing in that game a lot of the times and i don't know where to go um and i i don't find the map in that very useful at all actually which is okay in some instances i think there's a lot of things to see in that world and a lot to explore so just running around you know it's that opposite problem where what i mentioned uh mafia 2 where it's just empty uh, Breath of the Wild has awesome stuff to see all over the place. But if I'm trying to complete a quest, I'm like, I have no idea where to go for this. And I, I, I find myself getting frustrated often when I'm trying to finish a certain quest. 
because I, I, I have not heard that frustration from anyone. Uh, you know, most of what I've heard is people who sort of praise it for allowing it to be a little more freeform, a little more exploratory. And I haven't heard too many people complain about the um, issues of feeling lost. Uh, and I don't know, Jared, in um, Breath of the Wild, do you find that you get lost or do you find that you enjoy being lost or, or is that something that's unique to just Bruner? Um, well, I guess one thing, one, one qualifier I should throw out there is that, uh, with Breath of the Wild, I kind of play it as, you know, an exploration game rather than an adventure game. So I haven't done a ton of the mainline quest. I haven't, you know, followed up on, you know, a lot of the side, you know, sideline quest. It's just been kind of exploring and, you know, oh, I wonder if I could get to the top of this mountain with, you know, the equipment I have and, and this and that, um, so as far as, you know, I haven't finished the game, so I don't have a complete, you know, opinion on, on the game and, and um, things like that. Um, so I guess, you know, I'll throw my thoughts out there with that qualifier. Now, are there any games that have, that do have mini maps in them that you, you find you really like the way the mini map is implemented? Like it, it stands out to you as being like, this is, this is what mini maps were made for. Probably the Metroid Prime series. Um, Metroid is, you know, like my favorite game series. And um, with the jump to Metroid Prime, they had to, you know, adapt the game for 3D. And, you know, one of the, the big staples of the Metroid game was, you know, exploration, revisiting areas, and kind of knowing where you're going. And, you know, the top right of Samus's visor is just this, um, you know, just this map that kind of shows where you are but also shows how you're oriented there so um i haven't seen too many other games that had this kind of 3d map that had directionality that um kind of really communicated where you are uh so if you're in kind of like a a tall cylinder type room you'll see that tall cylinder um not in any detail but just kind of in the corner of the screen um then if you go into you know a walkway you'll see that um, so you can kind of pop open the, the full map, figure out where you need to go. And, um, then that map, I felt like did a really good job of communicating where you needed to go. And also in Metroid and Metroid prime, they do some of the things we were talking about earlier where, you know, the different areas have different colors. Um, there's different sound effects, um, or, or there's different music tracks that go with different areas. Um, but I think the mini map in the Metroid prime games, is probably one of my favorites and I haven't seen too many games do something quite like that. Now, what is it like, I guess maybe if you could get like more specific, why is that better than say like the, the radar in, in destiny? I know it's it maybe a little bit of comparing apples and oranges, but um, what is there, is there anything like maybe a little more specific that you, you really appreciated about that, that you don't find in other in other games or has that, or have you seen it like represented in other games that just didn't quite execute on the same level as, uh, as that one did? Yeah. Um, part of it, I think is a product of the design in Metroid prime, um, you know, either one, two or three where you have these large open worlds, but they're all kind of connected through doors, through hallways, through tubes. Um, so you can kind of do this thing where, um, you know, you go into a wide open space and you're like, oh, I need to get to that door that was in the lower right corner of 
this area. And then once I get to there, I need to take the fork in the road on the left once I get to the tubes. And then I can take, you know, the elevator up. Um, and so you can see those elements really well. Like, you know, it actually highlights the the doors. So you can kind of make a beeline for whatever door and then know where you're going from there. And more open world games, you know, they have multiple levels. They have, you know, not just a left and a right, but you have, you know, all those degrees of direction in between. Um, so it might be a product of the design why, you know, that the map uh, in Metroid Prime worked out really well because not too many other games are designed like that. Yeah, that, that actually, I mean, having not played Metroid, any of the games in the Metroid Prime series, I, I, I haven't seen that map specifically, but it sounds it sounds cool because it sounds like they took the important information from Metroid and implemented it in the map rather than just sort of taking the what I'll call the like the generic approach of like a 2D map that just has red dots where your enemies are. Um, they found ways to in- incorporate the other important information that's unique to the Metroid world and to your understanding of that world and implemented it into that map. Th- does that sound accurate? Yeah. Um, I mean, Nintendo, I think, is kind of the, the master at taking you know, a 2D game and translating it into 3D and having that same feel and, and kind of like what you mentioned, you know, with the 2D Metroid games, it was just this 2D map that, you know, you needed to go over to this area, you know, you needed to go down. Um, but Metroid Prime still has that same feel, but they, I feel like they did a great job of translating that to 3D. I think Nintendo in general just has a good sense of their video games. Like Nintendo to me seems like a company that operates very heavily on feelings and emotion where I think someone like Ubisoft and, you know, there's plenty of people that like a lot of the Ubisoft games, but they, they seem to like sort of just redo the same thing over and over again and iterate on it a little bit where, you know, even this past year, I look at something like uh, breath of the wild and it's, it's unlike any other Zelda game that's ever been made before, but still in so many ways, seems to feel like a Zelda game, especially to, to fans of that series. And it's not because they copy and pasted mechanics from old Zelda games, but because they, they seem to just in some way understand what Zelda feels like. And that's, you know, that's true of like, of Mario. I remember when they went from, you know, the 2d Mario's to Mario 64 and it still felt like that fun platforming of the original games, but now it's in this new, candy wrapper it they there's there's something magic that they they do over there where they just they they understand like almost every single beat of how those things work exactly now i don't think that breath of the wild necessarily benefits from a mini map i think there's a distinction when a mini map is super useful versus just a compass and i think that a lot of games that use mini maps could get away with less and just use a compass. Uh, for example, the the Fallout games, you know, Fallout, starting with Fallout three through four, um, they just have a compass at the bottom of your screen, and you can put waypoints on your main map and your Pip Boy, and those will show up as markers when you turn around the compass in game. Uh, but that's more useful because I'm not really staring at that compass because it's really just showing me a direction and 
you know, where I put that waypoint down. So I find myself looking at the world more and not as much at the mini map trying to figure out where I am from, you know, a hundred feet in the air, like a overhead view, which I think is usually more useful than a mini map in most cases. Now, when I think a mini map is super crucial is in multiplayer games, which you've kind of touched on a little bit, Steve, with Call of Duty. You get that better spatial awareness by being able to see like, hey, there's shots coming from over here or my teammate died over here because you only have sight, you know, as looking at a person looking at a screen, you don't have, you don't necessarily have the, as much sound direction in your headphones as you would in real life. You don't have, um, you know, echoes bouncing off of buildings that would help you kind of orientate yourself to where noise is coming from. So I think that especially in tactical games, multiplayer games, uh, mini maps can become much more important. And I think getting away from them in single player experiences is probably a, a better choice in modern game design most of the times. Now, are you, are you ready for a, a bold statement, Jared? Which you say? Was Either one. Both of you can answer simultaneously. <laughs> no, I'm not ready, but go okay. ahead. I'll go ahead anyway. <laughs> I think Call of Duty has the best implementation of a mini-map ever. Period. I'm, I'm not going to argue. I guess and that's going to do it for this episode have, like... of Game Breaking Feature. Make sure to tune in next week when we just... <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, for what Call of Duty gets, I think it, it does it well. I think it's an example of a mini-map that I remember, whereas I... I don't really recall. I think most of these games that we're talking about, I have to go back and like look at screenshots. I'm like, Oh, was there a mini map in that game? See, I think for, so the reason, the reason I I made that statement, it it might not be very bold. There might be plenty of people that agree with me, but the reason I think that, uh, call of duty and specifically, uh, the games that came after modern warfare, uh, use the mini map so well is because the mini map became this interactive tool in the experience of playing the game. It became, it, it, it was so crucial to the way that information was shared with you and other players on your team and to the enemy team that it became a constant consideration when playing, when playing that game. Um, I, I've said in the past, I think the most powerful weapon in Call of Duty is information, is knowing where the enemy is at any given time and being able to react to that. And the minimap is the big part of it. So I guess for people who haven't played Call of Duty or haven't played it recently and maybe have forgotten how that minimap worked, it's it was just a 2D representation of the topography of the the, the battlefield. It, it you know it kind of only showed the area around you, but it uh, when when people would fire their gun, they would show up as a red dot on the radar, so you would know where people were. But then the 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 reason it's so cool is because so much of your decisions while playing the game or even before you got into a game were based around that mini map. So, you know, if you equipped a silencer to your weapon, then when you fired your gun, you would you wouldn't appear on the radar for enemies. And then in the uh, you know, potential kill streaks, you could have things like UAVs that would periodically show the position of all the people on the map. But then you could equip a perk that makes it so you don't show up when a UAV scans the map. And then you could equip a a rocket launcher in one of your loadouts so you could shoot down the UAV when it shows up. Or you could equip a uh, a radar jammer as one of your your 
kill streaks that would just block the radar for everyone. So it became this like contested part of the battlefield uh, to to bring up battlefield again, but it it became this contested element of the design of the game where it wasn't just there to give you information, but also it became part of your decision making process for like how much information you wanted to share about your position or how much you wanted to help out your team by sharing information. And and that's why I think for me that that might be the coolest implementation I've ever seen of a, a mini map in a game. It's because they're implementing that directly to the gameplay. I think that that's like a great example. Um, a lot of the times when I think mini maps are doing a bad job is when they are just a zoomed out version of the place that you're standing on. And so it's like, you can see this, but it's like, it's not really helpful because it's not giving you the information that you need. Um, on the flip side of that, there are many maps that don't show enough information at all. Uh, Battlefield 3, when that first came out, had a terrible mini map. You know, the, the world that you were running around in is very detailed. There's grass, there's buildings and mountains. And the mini map would just show like an outline of like a rectangle as a building. You were like, well, what the shit? Like there's like a bunch of stuff in between this building and around it. Like, how do I know? Like, where am I in the world? They eventually ended up updating it to uh, kind of be more of a satellite view. So you could see the terrain and that was slightly more helpful. But I think that, yeah, when, when mini maps are doing their job, they're giving you information that's relevant that you need and not too little or too much all at once. Well, kind of on that, you know, same topic um, of of mini maps that are part of the gameplay, and this is this is kind of similar to you know the Metal Gear Solid um, example we spoke about is Hitman. Um, I think they do a really good job in Hitman of you know giving you the mini map, and you can kind of figure out um, where people are located because like Metal Gear Solid is also a stealth game, so you need to know where you are in relation to people and where walls are and where doors and stairwells and things like that are. And I've tweeted about how much I like uh, Divinity Original Sin 2, um, partly because it doesn't hold your hand. It, it is have, it's, it's a pretty scripted game in that everything is voice acted and all the quests are pre-written and it's not like a typical open world. It's not like a sandbox or anything. Um, but you know, you'll you'll talk to an NPC, they'll give you a quest, and you'll know the general direction you have to head, but they don't put a, a quest marker or anything down. So you just got to kind of know, okay, I need to go to this town, and then I'll search for clues there. The mini-map in that game is absolutely useless. It, it's one of those that kind of just gives you, it represents you as a dot in the middle, and then it's just kind of, a, you know, if they, they took a picture from 100 feet up, and it doesn't give you any information that is useful or more useful than just looking at the game that you're playing because you're already playing from an overhead view in divinity and the mini map does the same thing uh, i'm constantly finding myself like well where is that in relations to myself and i can kind of zoom out on the mini map but it's not useful at all and likewise the full size map in that game lists major cities and you can make notes on it but it doesn't really update it's not useful which can be a little bit frustrating if the rest of the game wasn't so good. And I haven't run into an issue where I've gotten stuck yet. Uh, it just kind of sticks out to me because the minimap does take up a pretty decent-sized corner of the screen, and I, I don't find it to be useful at all. played the first Divinity, but not uh, the second one yet. And, you know, speaking from the, the development side, I wonder if another point we're hitting on is, you know, how core was 
the mini map, you know, to part of the development because, you know, the type of mini map you're describing where it's just kind of an overhead view where you might see the, the land and that's pretty much it. Um, something like that is fairly straightforward to implement in a game. Um, but, you know, the, the more dynamic, the more interactions, the more um, maybe viewpoints um, and, and just kind of elements that happen in a minimap, that's, that's more time you have to put into programming. That's more time you have to put into z design, uh, thinking about how those systems will work, you know, the, the color palettes that you're going to use. And so, you know, I'd be curious to, you know, talk with some of the development teams and figure out, you know, at what, you know, point in the development process did you start working on the minimap was this kind of yeah like when did you start yeah. considering this as part of your game and this this seems like it might be part of like a, a trend in game design because you know obviously when i when i first started playing games back in the you know early 90s there there weren't very many games that included things like minimaps but I feel like maybe maybe it was Call of Duty. Maybe it was Modern Warfare that sort of kicked off this recent trend where every game has to have a minimap. Or, you know, in the case of Divinity Original Sin, which is an isometric uh, RPG, like maybe they're drawing from these influences of games like, uh, I don't know, like Warcraft, the old Warcraft games. Uh, I think they had minimaps. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, maybe we're seeing this trend where people are feeling obligated to include mini maps because it's expected from the audience, even if it's not necessarily, uh, you know, important for the design of the game. Do you see any, anything like a, a trend in this or is it, is it maybe just like the types of games that I play typically feel the need to put mini maps in them? No, I, I agree. I think it's something that is generally just expected um, you, you play a new game and you're like, oh, yes, of course, there's the minimap. Like, no one's really ever surprised to see a minimap. Um, when you mentioned Horizon Zero Dawn, given it's been several months since I finished that game, uh, I couldn't remember if there's a minimap or not, but um, I think it's cool that they didn't have a minimap and I didn't miss it because they had other ways of implementing that. You know, it's kind of like how Call of Duty started making everything, you know, that they... They were the ones to popularize, popularize that progression of unlocking new guns and skins. Uh, and then suddenly now every game has some kind of progression element or some kind of RPG elements where you're earning experience. Uh, I think it is a trend and they, people see that it's successful in other games. And so they try to implement it into theirs for better or for worse. And it's just something that we often talk about in this podcast is that uh, if you're going to do it, have a reason to do it. And... You know, sometimes sometimes there's a good reason, and, and other times, like in Divinity, I feel like they, maybe they they didn't really have any other reason other than we should just put something on the screen up here in this corner. And and Horizon Zero Dawn is a great example. I I certainly feel like maybe it's just even been within this last year that we've seen companies developers moving away from the use of. of of mini maps as sort of like a, a response to how prevalent they've become. Um, I think about a game like Overwatch, which is also a, a multiplayer first person shooter um, in the same vein as Call of Duty, but they very specifically moved away from the use of, of mini maps. And I think, I think smartly, I mean, they, they implemented so many other 
ways of understanding your world in that game that the minimap would have, again, I think kind of felt arbitrary or like maybe like a crutch. But the the sound design on that game is so is so good that you can you can hear the distinct footsteps. Like if you know who's on your team, you know, like, oh, I've got a, a Winston, a Zarya, a Zenyatta, a Mercy, a Tracer, and a 76. When you hear Reaper's boots hitting the ground, you know that's an enemy Reaper. And it, it it's it's really smart that they designed it that way, that you know, they they put enough of those other elements of design in the game that it wasn't absolutely necessary for them to to have that map to give you that information. You know, I know we're running a little long here, but um, I, I think a mini map, when most people consider like MOBAs, like League of Legends or Dota 2 uh, or, you know, StarCraft, you know, any RTS, a mini map, I think in most of those cases is considered absolutely imperative to the design of the game because you're using it to move your 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 troops around a lot. So it's like a quick way to be like, hey, go over to this mountain, mine needs resources, you know, helps you quickly move around uh, the entire map. Um, Super Monday Night Combat was, you know, another MOBA that came out um, a few years ago. And it was, a th- they took that that design from uh, Dota and League of Legends and made a third person MOBA. That didn't have a mini map at all. And the way that they conveyed information to you, like one of the most important things in, in a MOBA is knowing where your teammates are so you can coordinate. Uh, they just let you see your teammates through walls like they were just represented as a you know a, a silhouette through walls but so they, I thought that was, was really was smart also, way to get around it and there was other really cool stuff in that game as well because another big part of that game was the announcers that were constantly you know playing over the, the sound system yeah when you're and, going for the uh, annihilator in the middle you're like yeah. oh shit i gotta get up there and you didn't have to rely on a mini map to get that information yeah so it, you know and and very humorous writing you know so you could almost overlook it as just being like this outlet for comedic relief but there there was constantly a lot of really good information being dispersed to the players about where the enemy you know where the enemy uh creeps were and you know when players on your team were taken out all that stuff was communicated to you through the announcers in a, in a very smart way you know where <sighs> Man. it was it was like clever creative but also informative and and necessary for that experience we don't talk about super monday night comet enough no on we show. Just, i think we should just do we a whole just episode do- well, we should just do a whole podcast about it. Let's okay, just try. Yeah. Let's try and like a phoenix bring that back from the ashes. There you <laughs> go. We, there's that. Uh, there's that Twitter account that like tweets out day by day um, events of World War II in real time. We could we could kind of do that with Super Monday Night Combat. You know, from starting from its early release, and then uh, mm. you know the podcast slowly devolves into a deep depression as you realize the game is yeah. dying a horrible death. Jared, <laughs> did you ever have the opportunity to play Super Monday Night Combat? I did not, but I. Is it coming out on Switch? I, I no, this, this game is oh, way dead. Oh, okay. you, <laughs> it's, it's, you, you, you brought my hopes way up, and then you dashed them, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. Was we've talked about it on here before? It an amazing game that was poorly supported by the team behind it, and uh, the community ended up drying up to the point that it was you'd have to wait like two hours to get into a match. Oh gosh. Which was, which was so unfortunate because that game was like such, such a piece of art, such a just, I mean, I hate the word fun. (laughs) I've been reading, reading Ian Bogost book. uh, (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I'm adopting his, uh, his hatred of the word fun, but uh, that game was just fun. Like it, it, it executed on all levels of, of, you know, being silly and the gameplay felt right. And, 
and no mini map and no mini map yeah to bring, <laughs> to bring it back around thank you jerry for keeping me on track because i was about to turn this into a super monday night combat podcast <laughs> well um let, let's i guess maybe try and wrap this conversation up uh jared is there is there some way that uh, the industry or game developers could improve in the way that they implement mini maps in games, or um, or is there some alternative you'd like to see? What what can the industry do better in your eyes? Yeah, I mean it. It really depends on a lot because you know earlier we were talking about you know sometimes the environment can communicate things through different colors. You mentioned Overwatch, different sound effects, things like that. But you know, for example, in a game like GTA Five, you can't have you know all the buildings in this area are colored green and all the buildings in this area are purple. I mean, that just doesn't fit with the theme of the game. Um, but I think as far as mini maps, um, you know, there's, there's multiple ways of conveying information on mini maps, whether it's, you know, here's an icon where you are, whether it's, um, um, here's where the objectives are. Um, tying a compass in with the minimap, whether the compass is kind of, you know, overlaid over the minimap or um, um, one thing I don't know if I've seen many games do is try to show you the minimap and then kind of fade it out when it's not needed. Um, mm, yeah. And that's that's something I'd be interested to, to see some people experiment with. You know? So, you know, maybe the minimap pops up when you have a new objective and then it fades into the background because the environment kind of shows you the rest of the way to go. So, um, I mean, I know there's kind of a recent trend with getting away from mini-maps, um, but along with that, I would like to see other, you know, experiments with mini-maps as well, too. And Bruner, how about you? What do you want to see in the future for mini-maps as we move forward? Um, I, I think I could use to get rid of them in most cases. I think there's probably a better solution. I, I feel like it's just so ingrained in game design and UI design at this point that it's an easy fallback. Uh, and, and in most cases, it gets the point across. But I think that if you sit down and think about the way that your game is presenting information, you can probably come up with a more creative solution. Like in Horizon Zero Dawn, you can use your your focus to see, you know, the, the footprints of where people have been in the last, you know, couple of minutes, uh, stuff like that, I think is, is really neat. Um, in games like, you know, the Arma series or DayZ, you start out without anything. Um, in, in many cases, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the mod specifically for DayZ, you would have to find a map in the world. And that's, then you would see the entire island and then you'd have to figure out, oh, okay, I, I think I am in, uh, Chernarasis or Chernarus, or how you pronounce it, um, and then you you would find your way there. You're like, oh, I know the ocean's always on the west coast. I can I can make my way, uh, and then you could also find a GPS, and that made more sense. And then I think you would you might get a uh, a mini map when you got the GPS, and that I don't really remember how it worked. Um, so you know maybe putting maps as discoverable items back into the world. I know some games have done that in the past, and um, you know I think that that is useful many times. But it just, I guess, depends on, you know, don't don't just put a mini map there just because you feel like you have to. I, I would say it would be what I'd like to see. Yeah, I I look back at the days of when in like the Elder Scrolls games, you would be given in like a set of instructions on how to get to a place, and it wouldn't put a it wouldn't put a waypoint or anything on a map. It was just like, hey, to get to that town, you make a left on that road, and you go until you hit the fork, and then you make a right, and they. 
sort of explain to you in almost real world terms how to navigate your way through the through the world. Um, I don't know that we need to fully go back, you know, go back to the way that things used to be, because I think, you know, I, I, I think that mini maps uh, can do a good job of communicating important information to the player. What I would like to see is if, if we're uh, in agreement that mini maps in some ways are important, is I would like to see kind of what Jared was talking about earlier with Metroid Prime, where the minimap really takes into account what's important for the experience at the time and not just have it be this kind of generic thing that is in all video games, but maybe have it be something that's, you know, creative and unique to the experience of playing that game, um, you know, in, in communicating the information that's important to the player. And I, I did think of one more thing that I would love to see is, um, you know, in games with minimaps, um, making the minimap configurable because like i said you know with mm. uh, breath of the wild uh you can turn the minimap off but that's with everything else in the ui and maybe having the option of toggling the minimap off separately than different elements i think would let players you know kind of decide how they want to experience the game you know whether they want to learn you know the world whether they want to learn the street names and things like that um, or if they want to have the minimap there the whole time, um, but not kind of all or nothing with the UI. I think it's come up multiple times that we're we're fans of uh, more options in games. Like the more options to uh, sort of customize the experience, I think the better usually. I bet we're going to start seeing some really creative solutions to this in VR because of the way those games are designed to be immersive mm. and you are in the game, you are not playing a game. You know, that's the, that's the experience most of these things want you to have. Um, there's a game that I, I saw someone playing over the weekend called Standout VR Battle Royale. It's what you'd expect from a Battle Royale game. Um, it's real early access, but the way that they handle their minimap is you turn your your Vive controller sideways like you're looking at your wristwatch in the game and a little minimap pops up just while you're looking down at your wristwatch. And I think that's really neat. Nice. That way, you know, it doesn't take you out of the game. It's not something that's in your peripherals because I can imagine having something stuck to your, your eyeballs in VR would get really distracting and hard to focus on. So, um, you know, maybe some development for VR in that in that regard will spill over to traditional mainstream gaming. I like that the answer to all of the the topics we've talked about on this show somehow happens to be VR. Like VR will save us from all of these like it's, ingrained it's the mechanics. Wild West. Like <laughs> people are having to figure out just how to move around a map. You know, it's it, you're, they're kind of having to rethink all sorts of aspects of game design. So, you know, I think that'll help innovate in other areas too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And you know what else I'm looking forward to, Jared? Um, Listener emails. <laughs> <laughs> is that what we're doing now? Yep. If you have any questions or comments about radars or compasses or any of our previous topics, please send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, we're always taking ideas for uh, episode topics. So if you got those, send them along as well. Jared, let's hop yes. over to some listener feedback. What do we got? Our first piece of feedback was from, are these both from Alex? I can't tell here. Yes. So, yeah, we got two comments from Alex. Uh, and regarding episode 18, we were talking about accessibility with Sharif. With Sharif, yeah. Yeah, it was with Sharif. Uh, he says, uh, Alex says, I've seen a ton of threads on Reddit thanking Blizzard for how good their colorblind mode and accessibility in Overwatch is. 
you get to see real stories of how disabled gamers can enjoy these games thanks to these options. Um, and that I, I would agree with him. I, I feel like Blizzard has been pretty good at listening to what their consumers need um, and implementing that into you know games like Overwatch is important of uh, you know representing those those people who need that stuff. Yeah, I think I think we maybe had mentioned it in that episode, and it might have been briefly, but I think Blizzard had done work with able gamers to implement uh, accessibility options into World World of Warcraft uh, pretty early on, and it seems like they've kind of carried that forward. Now I don't remember if colorblind was available right away in Overwatch. I think that was something that was like a supplemental addition after the game had released, but. Again, it's like one of those things that's cool about the way games are made now. You know, like we, we sometimes complain about like day one patches and stuff like that, but it really does allow the developer to get the game out into the world and then, you know, have these these cool functionality updates uh, down the road that bring that can allow even more people to get into. Yeah, into I haven't, I haven't messed around with Overwatch's accessibility options, but I can imagine where there's, you know, so many abilities and spells and stuff going off on screen if those are color-coded. You, you, a lot of people might have trouble distinguishing those. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, even, you know, like, it's it's pretty typical to outline enemies in red. And when, you know, out, if you're red-green colorblind and red appears to be gray to you and your teammates appear to be blue, you know, blue and gray can oftentimes be, you know, fairly similar appearing visually so it could be very hard to distinguish what's going on you know and th- and that's not um overwatch exclusive that's you know a lot of games will often outline enemies as red and and friendlies as blue um and i i can only imagine as as someone who does doesn't suffer from colorblindness how frustrating it can be to try to distinguish all of that information but um i actually just um over the holidays was talking with my cousin who is red green colorblind and he has it bad like he he has a very difficult time distinguishing between red and green um and he was and and we were talking about it in relation to video games and he was he's so like appreciative of all of the games that have these options available so you know it it's cool to hear you know a a first person account of, of how important these uh these tools are yeah it takes it takes resources and and time to get that stuff out so seeing seeing a big company yeah. like blizzard i think is a good example for other developers to follow now jared in um in art club challenge have you been thinking about things like accessibility for for i mean especially it being such a, a visual art based game you know how have how have these issues of accessibility influenced your design or have they absolutely so um one of my good friends um is a gentleman named Ian Hamilton, and he um, has done a number of talks at GDC about accessibility. And just from knowing him, I hadn't thought about accessibility, you know, uh, prior to having some conversations with him years ago. And so, one of the cool things about accessibility is there's a lot of things that don't take too much, you know, extra dev time or don't take a ton of extra effort if you're aware of them. So that's why I encourage all the game developers to check out some accessibility talks, to check out some, you know, accessibility guidelines or, or papers, because if you try to add all these accessibility things at the end of the game, um, it's going to be hard. You know, you might not be able to get things in as well. But if you're thinking about it, 
then you can, you know, kind of add those those things in um, uh, when they come up. So um, with Art Club Challenge, the way that you um, kind of scale the blocks, you know, if you want to make it longer or something like that, is you do basically a, a pinching gesture like you would, you know, to zoom into a map or something. Um, the old way um, you used to be able to scale things in the game is you'd have those, like, um, think of, like, a selection box and, like, it, you know, Photoshop or something like that, where you have like the um, the dots around the corners, and you just kind of drag one of those out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was working on getting the the gesture, you know, scaling to work, and I was about to take out the code for the um, you know the boxes. And then I was like, wait a second, what if somebody has you know some type of of motor disability, or you know. Um, it's hard for them to do a pinching gesture. They're not going to be able to play the game or it's going to be more difficult. So I was able to leave that option in um, and make the game more accessible. It didn't cost me any, you know, extra dev time or anything just because I was aware of, you know, that potential limitation. Um, another thing in the game is there's, you know, not really any time limits um, or, you know, um, Twitch-based, you know, action or anything like that, which makes it more accessible for for people who, um, you know, potentially have a, a a motor impairment or something. That's cool to hear because I I feel like oftentimes in in games when it comes to accessibility, sometimes like creativity is needed in order to to make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. So I I like hearing the the different ways that. Uh, that developers find to make their specific product work for for more people. So that, that's cool to hear. Uh, Bruner, do we have anything else? Yeah, also from Alex. Uh, he mentioned that he was listening to uh, episode 19 about empowerment with uh, Jenny. Uh, he said he wanted to mention the idea of disempowerment, which we, we did talk about quite a bit, uh, usually in regards to like horror games. Um, he says specifically Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2, the infamous No Russian mission, where you play as uh, a part of a, a terrorist group that walks into an airport or a mall. I don't remember. It's an airport, yeah. Yeah, and and you, you can you can't really stop what's happening. Um, you can interact with it in like basically one of two ways, but they kind of take you out of that. They don't let you have any choice in the matter. Uh, he also men- mentions a very specific moment in Wolfenstein 2 with uh, your father, uh, I, which I, I'm hesitant to mention because it's a bit of a spoiler, and I we think it's a really it. good moment. Yeah, we can skip it. Um, but yeah, it, it, they, they kind of take away the decision for you and don't let you progress, and it's, it really makes you feel hopeless, and you're like, man, this this sucks, and I think that's you know what they're going for, obviously. Um, Alex asks, what are your thoughts on narrative structures where the game forces the player to take an action that they don't want to? Um, Jared, I'll throw that to you. Can you think of any, any examples of games where they, they make you do something that you don't necessarily want it to do? Or, and, and how did that make you feel? I mean, it's, it's one of those things that um, is kind of a risky thing to, to do because, you know, the, the medium of games is about giving the, the player control, giving the player choice. And Sometimes when you take that away, it can feel violating. Like, oh, that was kind of lame and cheap. Like, I didn't even get to, you know, make a call there. But other times it can be impactful where it's like, oh, you know, I've been doing this action throughout the game, but I never stopped to think about why I was doing it or 
or things like that. Um, I, I think that's a great point because in, in both of these examples in Modern Warfare 2 and in Wolfenstein 2, they these these events could have been portrayed as cutscenes, but there's something that the developers thought was important about putting the player in that position um, that was, that was important for those moments. Um, and, you know, it, in, I mean, no Russian, you know, where you're mowing down innocent people in a, uh, in an airport. I don't know that that would have been as affecting, uh, had it been a cutscene. I don't think it would have made national news if it had been a cutscene. but by, by putting the player in that position, they, they took this very hard stand on what that scene was trying to say. <laughs> um, so the, a game came out a couple years ago, which I'm going to spoil right now is uh, Until Dawn. There's uh, it's, it's, you know, it's mainly a quick time game. You're making decisions the whole way. There's a scene in there where you, if you make a certain decision, your hand gets stuck in like a bear trap and there's something coming to get you. And it's like, it gives you like a decision to just wait there. And in the meantime, like it keeps cutting away to this thing that's like closing in on you very quickly or to like basically like rip your arm off or your hand off or your finger, whatever it was. And it makes you press a button every time. And it's just kind of like this really gruesome, disgusting, like dismemberment scene where you're having to interact to, to free yourself. Otherwise, uh, the implication is it would be, you know, you would die. Um, I thought that was pretty effective because... It's real gross trying to uh, rip your arm off, your own arm off. I thought this was, I know, I thought this was actually a great question from him because we talked about disempowerment in that episode being represented by, you know, things like having limited ammo or, or limited ways to interact with enemies in the game. But we didn't even touch on something like this. And and I don't even know if this, this qualifies. This gets into kind of an interesting uh tangent i think to that discussion so i was i thought it was cool that alex brought this up and this is this is alex fogelman our our guest from back in episode 13 so if you like his uh his quirky brain and the way it works uh go give go give that episode a listen bruno that's did, it so we, we have got anything today no nope, we're done yeah just those two perfect all right well that's gonna do it uh if you have uh, any comments or questions or anything about the topic we've discussed today or any of our previous topics again you can always send us emails at podcast at gbfeature.com and that's going to do it for this episode but before we get out of here i have to thank our guest jared huntley jared thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to join us man this has been a great conversation likewise thanks so much for having me this is this is a lot of fun to, to talk shop turns for out sure. this podcast is big enough for both jareds <laughs> i guess it is and the real the age old the real journey was all the Jareds met along the way. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared, where can where can people uh, find your work? Where can they find Art Club Challenge when it comes out? Fill fill our listeners in on all the details. Yeah, so I am at Jared Huntley, J A R R Y D H U N T L E Y on Twitter. Um, my Twitter for the game is at Art Club Game. And then um, if you're wondering what's happening in Cleveland, you can check out clevelandgamedevs.com. Uh, right on. Well, thank, thank you again for joining us. Um, it, it was awesome having you here. 
As a reminder, we release new episodes of this show every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.